73 of the Walking Closer podcast. This is part three of Jesus the Man. We have been going through a few episodes and focusing on the humanity of Jesus. And the whole reason why I wanted to do this is because, and I know that I've, I've done this, and this may be true for you as well, that when we typically think about Jesus, I think maybe we focus more on his divinity and less on his humanity. And uh, he almost becomes this, I don't know, otherworldly figure, right? That's just kind of floating around. And uh, the reality is that he was human. And as I've shown in the, the, the previous episodes, even the writers of the New Testament uh, saw Jesus as human. And they used specific language in talking about Jesus, the man. And they're very specific about saying the man. And so what we did was we started with his parents, you know, Mary and Joseph, um, and uh, Joseph being understood as his earthly father, and uh, what that was like, their relationship there. We talked a little bit more about his childhood, Jesus' childhood, and we took a, a look at his relationship specifically with his mother, which is interesting because it just kind of pulls out some things that demonstrate, highlight the humanity of Jesus and the relationship that he had with his, with his mom. Uh, and so today, what I want to do in this episode is talk a little bit about what Jesus might have looked like. Now, <laughs> obviously, we don't have a picture of Jesus, per se, right? Uh, nobody, you know, Jesus didn't pose for <laughs> for a self-portrait. Um, what did he look like? Well, it's kind of hard to answer. Uh, we can possibly come into the you know the realm of generalities here uh, when thinking about what Jesus looked like and so if he was like a typical Jew he was probably somewhere around you know five foot five or so um, and this was and th- that that just simply comes from the average height of skeletons from males that were found during that time the time of Jesus uh, during that time people tended to have you know, brown eyes and, and black hair and olive brown skin. That is Jews specifically. In fact, there are some descriptions we have from ancient texts that say that it was hard to distinguish between Jews and Egyptians during Jesus' day. And so I find that interesting. That kind of gives us some clue about probabilities here. Uh, I'm also told that there are some records that showed people in Judea kept their hair and beards reasonably short and groomed because there was a this big problem with lice. And so that potentially might have uh, been something that Jesus had to deal with. And, um, you know, but just simply based on what's common, what the average look uh, was during his time, I think we can come into this realm of, of you know, generalities. Uh, I, I would suggest that I think Jesus was a physically active person, obviously, right? He was a carpenter. Remember, the term that's used there that's translated carpenter can, can refer to just about anything. I know growing up, I thought Jesus was a carpenter, and that, that, that concept of a carpenter was strictly related to someone who worked with wood. And, uh, you know, you might have seen in movies or cartoons or other shows or stories, Jesus being depicted as someone who either built a house or was, you know, working on furniture, I think is the most common one that I've seen. But the reality is, uh, you know, Jesus could have worked with all sorts of materials, uh, especially considering where he was and the resources that were available. You know, I would suggest that there's a higher probability that he worked more with stone and brick than he would have necessarily wood. 
um, which means that, you know, it was a physically demanding job, but Jesus could have been a blacksmith even. He could have been someone who built boats and so forth and so on. Um, but he was physically active, you know, and the idea of a carpenter is just simply someone who is really good with their hands. And uh, so Jesus had a trade that he learned. And, um, you know, I imagine if Jesus did, you know, work with stone that, uh, you know, he would have had to build up some strength more than normal, I guess. Um, I know he did a lot of walking, right? So he's obviously a physically active person. And uh, I always suggest that he was probably in pretty good shape. Uh, burned a lot of calories, right? In his in his work and in his his travels. Um, there's some people who say suggest that he was probably pretty lean but muscular. Probably not a whole lot of fat on his body, and that's that's very possible considering how active he would have been. Um, you know, some suggest that he didn't have access to as much food. Um, I think that's maybe a stretch. I know Jesus liked to eat a lot because he's always eating. <laughs> that was one of the big issues was the people he was eating with. So, uh, But you could see how there would be times where, you know, maybe in traveling and so forth, not having the abundance of food there. Um, although we do know that he had uh, inner circle, he had people, he had women, uh, you know, traveling with him at times. He had access to various resources and so forth. You know, um, I, I think that Jesus' appearance probably had more to do with his activity than his lack of nutrition. But hey, what do I know? Um, however, uh, based on what we do know, I would suggest that, yeah, he was probably in pretty good shape. And you know, obviously a lot of things when we talk about the way Jesus looked, you know, his physical appearance, which would be so helpful, right? Because, um, man, what a, what a connection, a better connection you might even feel if you had an image of you know Jesus and who he was um so a lot of, a lot of times when we talk about this is we're talking in speculations right this is the realm of speculation and it would seem to me that he would have had to have i would suggest maybe even you know substantial body mass um could have been could have been short and stocky like the average person might have been you know 5 foot 5 or so even i've heard even estimates maybe a little bit taller than that, but um, I suggest that, you know, I, I, I think it's very possible that Jesus would have had a substantial amount of body mass. Um, maybe he was even a little taller than the average person, and I'll get to that here in a moment why I even speculate on that. I think about his trade, and I think about even some of the things that I've mentioned already, about the physical demands of what he did, um, not only in his trade, but and thereafter, right, the the traveling and so forth. I think of him, you know, what it have taken to endure all of that. I think of, you know, the fasting for 40 days. Imagine 40 days without food and still still being able to uh, uh, function, function in a way cognitively, you know, functioning in a way where you can respond to things. And obviously at the end of the 40 days, uh, at the end of his, the, 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 the temptations that he faced, um, you know, it was pretty devastating. And the story goes that uh, Jesus was ministered by angels. So obviously he is, uh, you know, <laughs> probably at the end of his rope uh, at that point. Um, however, uh, I would think about what it would take to endure something like that. And from a, just, again, speculative, purely from a physical you know, human uh, perspective, man, um, I think that 
you'd have to uh, you'd have to have a pretty substantial amount of body mass in order to endure that. Uh, then you know, then all the traveling. At the end of the day, regardless, Jesus had to be one tough guy for sure, right? Just one one tough dude. Um, but there's some other interesting things that I think about whenever I think about maybe what Jesus looked like. Some of the other instances in which you know he is confronted by people, like and and then how they reacted. Uh, one of those that always sticks out with me is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is going to be arrested by soldiers. Now, the soldiers, Roman soldiers, Jewish soldiers, um, and they come to arrest him. And when they come, they say, you know, Jesus and his disciples are like, who are you looking for? And he said, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. And as soon as he says this, they all draw back. And they fall down, like, like as if they were shocked. They were surprised. There was something about Jesus that was unsettling. Now, I argue that it could have been his actual appearance. You know, when you see someone who is maybe bigger than the average person, maybe more muscular, maybe taller, someone who has this demanding presence, right, uh, this demeanor maybe even, and I would suggest that considering all the things that I've talked about already, about what he would have had to endure, uh, just simply being a tough guy, I wonder, I wonder if they're like, hey, we're looking for Jesus. And she says, I'm he. And, you know, look, these are Roman soldiers, okay? <laughs> like, these are Roman soldiers. They draw back and they, 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 they fall down. Like, what's going on there? You'd have sworn that they saw Goliath, right? Um, and I suggest that, Possibly this might have to do with them being caught off guard and not realizing that, oh, like, this is the guy we're looking for. Like, this is, oh, I thought maybe you would have looked differently, maybe smaller, maybe, you know, some scrawny little teacher running around causing trouble. But uh, instead, you know, they're taken off guard by this. Now, yes, an argument can be made and we can poke holes through all these things because they're just mere speculations. It could have been just the stories they heard about Jesus, whether true or not, but the stories they heard about Jesus, maybe you know some of the miracles he was able to do, maybe you know some of the, the how they saw him actually deal with maybe the teachers or religious leaders. Um, you know, maybe maybe those things were in their mind, uh, and they already had this certain perspective or of who Jesus was, and then um, obviously not knowing what he'd even look like. Uh, maybe that had something. To, I don't. I don't know. I don't. Know, but. Um, you know, I wonder, I wonder if Jesus wasn't the average Jewish man. I wonder if he was a bit taller. I wonder if there was something about his presence that caught people off guard and would keep people from even trying to, um, you know, stop him. Like, think about this. Jesus shows up to the temple, right? And he comes in with a whip. He starts turning tables over. He starts turning tables over and, you know, forcing people to leave. And he's saying, and nobody's stopping him. Like, nobody, <laughs> nobody tries to stop him. Like, why are they not trying to stop him? What is going on here? They're temple guards. There, there are soldiers. Like, what is going on here? And I wonder if, well, Jesus might have had this, again, like what I refer to as this demanding presence. It just... Uh, 
catches you off guard. And maybe he wasn't the small, scrawny, little skinny average guy that we might sometimes think him to be. Uh, No one stepped forward to uh, try and stop him in that moment. And when they do go and try to stop Jesus, what do they do? Well, you know, they bring groups of people, you know, soldiers and so forth. And I get it towards the end of Jesus's life or his ministry. You know, he has disciples, he has followers. And so you have to, you're going to have to contend with people and you, you don't know what you're walking into as a soldier. I get it. But, you know, the first time Jesus goes in the temple and he does this, nobody stops him. There's no record of, you know, anybody talking about, you know, how the temple guards or the soldiers or whatever, how they, how they dealt with it. And I just wonder, I don't know, just speculation. I wonder if Jesus might have been a towering figure. Ah, who knows? But yeah, he had to be one tough dude. And uh, his ability to make it through the beatings and the, you know, the scourging that he went through before he was executed. Man, to be able to make it through that from, again, purely human perspective. Yeah, one tough dude. Um, and that makes me speculate about his body mass. Maybe he was a bit bigger, thicker. Uh, maybe he was muscular. Uh, taller maybe even, and, you know, he just had larger body mass in general. So that's uh, some of the things that I begin to think about when I think about how what Jesus looked like that might be indicators from within within the, t- in the text. You know, there's no reason to believe that he was anything like what's oftentimes depicted in Hollywood or in our storybooks. You know, he's not wasn't European, obviously, not of European descent. Uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, probably not, right? Um, however, uh, if we think about who the Jews were, what they typically, what we know about them, uh, where he was from, and you know what they look like, we can come into this realm of generalities and say, okay, you know, more there's probabilities here that, uh, based on this, you know, I think it's safe to say that this may have been what Jesus looked like. But as we said before. We don't have, we don't have, we don't, we, no one stopped to take a picture of Jesus, right? He didn't take, he wasn't taking selfies. There's no, uh, there's, <laughs> he's not posing for a self-portrait. There's no sketches of him per se um, that uh, where someone was looking at him and said, this is what Jesus looked like, right? So we don't have anything like that. However, we do have something that poses at least to myself, lots of interest. So I find this very, very intriguing. And so I want to talk about here, that here for a moment. Uh, it's something called the Shroud of Turin. Turin meaning a, a city in uh, Italy. The Shroud of Turin, a shroud, a garment that you would have uh, been wrapped in um, during your, uh, your burial process. So if you haven't heard of the Shroud of Turin, I'm going to talk a little, and if you have, uh, I want to talk a little bit about that um, and what it is and what's what's so intriguing uh, to me, what I find so fascinating about this thing. The Shroud of Turin is one of the most, if not the most, perplexing artifacts that we have from antiquity. I'm talking people from across the spectrum, all the way from scientists to people who are believers, find this thing fascinating. It's a, a linen cloth that's about... 14, uh, 14, 15 feet long, three, four foot wide. Uh, it seems like I said it was a 
used as a burial cloth. Uh, it's an actual burial cloth, we think. But it has a, a faint yellow image of a crucified bearded man on it with bloodstains and wounds that, that match someone who would have been crucified, and which is what has led many people to believe that this is the burial cloth of Jesus. Now, when the, when the, what's fascinating is when the shroud is laid out, you can see a full frontal and back mirror image of an adult male. Okay, I actually have a three four foot uh, replica of this in my in my office. I'm so fascinated by this thing. Now, uh, the question has always been, how did this image get there? Okay, and it's been speculated that artists and uh, different ways in which this image is put onto this this cloth. Um, but what's fascinating is that this thing has been researched and studied, and science can't give us a definitive answer. Uh, it' not quite sure how it happened. Uh, have an idea of what can make it happen, but have no clue how it actually happened. And uh, so, and talk about this. Just kind of give you a little bit of background about you know, the shroud of Turin and where this thing has come from. Now, we have documented evidence of its existence starting around 1356, okay? Um, now, the thing is, it's like at that point in 1356, it was actually put out on display in France. Um, and we have, this is where we can definitively track its record, its existence, where it's been, things that have happened to it. Now, if it was... From around the first century, like if this thing would be the burial cloth of Jesus, you know, um, we don't we don't have a definitive concrete uh, line of evidence to follow. There's not a timeline there. In fact, a timeline could be constructed, but it would all be based on circumstantial evidence and, and tradition. And so, some have actually we, we've put it together this timeline that that possibly. I mean, it's it's uh, this probability here of of some percentage. I don't know what, but uh, that there's enough evidence to pull it together. But there's nothing that you can go on that's substantial necessarily. I would say maybe or maybe concrete. Okay, so let's just say it's from the first century. What's going on there? After Jerusalem is destroyed, tradition tells us that there's this cloth that shows up in uh, what's Turkey now, and. Uh, the city is called Edessa. I think that's how you say it, E-D-E-S-S-A. I'm not quite sure about the pronunciation here, but here I am, a Cajun, trying to, trying to pronunciate other words. I, <laughs> and so, anyways, uh, let's just say that we pronounce it Edessa. And we're told that the apostle Jude Thaddeus bought the cloth to Edessa and uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem. So this cloth shows up, and it's purportedly brought to this area by, by Jude. And then in the second century, in the midst of this persecution, the cloth was hidden inside the wall surrounding the city of Edessa, where it remained there for about 400 years, and people basically forgot about it. And then it was rediscovered in 525 AD when the wall was being rebuilt. And after its discovery, it became known as the image of Edessa, and, and people actually thought it was the image of Christ. And so during that time, uh, today we would say that most of uh, this area would have been the, considered the East, what we consider the East today. And so this is Orthodox uh, Christians. Uh, they thought this, this was the image of Christ, and so they began to adapt their, the images of Christ on icons and coins um, to the likeness of the face on the shroud. 
And so then some time passes, and Edessa was uh, you know, conquered, overrun under Islamic rule. And then in 944 AD, we're told that the Byzantine army invades Edessa to get the shroud and take it to Constantinople. Then, so they do this, and then in Constantinople is invaded during the Fourth Crusade. This would be around 1200, 1204 AD. And then the shroud is, uh, after they get the, the, uh, the, the uh, after Constantinople is invaded, the shroud just disappears. Okay, uh, remember the, the, the Crusades, these are going to be Knights of the Templar from the West, uh, from the Roman Church. And uh, so they come and invade Constantinople, the shroud disappears, and it's believed that the Knights Templar had it. And there's evidence, there's some things that you can follow that make you believe that, yeah, it's a strong possibility that this was, in fact, the family who had possession of the shroud at the time in which it was displayed in 1356 in France had ties to or had family members who had ties to or were connected with or were actually knights in the Knights Templar. So then in 1356, okay, is when this thing comes up, like it surfaces. And this is where we have more concrete uh, timeline as to its existence. and But we clues about where it came from. Except for the fact that there's this tradition and so forth and so on that we have. Now, um, like I said, there's evidence that it can be used to put piece all of this together up to this point. But again, it's not as concrete as we would have starting in 1356. And so, since it was first put on public display uh, in France, it has had an intriguing history. And I'm going to put some links in the show notes below so you can check. Out if you're interested in the history of the, the Shroud, especially from 1356 to this day. Um, if you're interested in that, check that out for more information. But in modern times, uh, this thing has been scientifically examined and studied and tested to figure out, you know, where did this thing come from and what's it all about? And as a result, what we figured out is that the Shroud has some unexplainable properties. And this is what's fascinating to people. Uh, and, and, you know, certain every time someone thinks that they can debunk something or come up with another theory, it is debunked. Like, it's just constant back and forth. Uh, there's nothing definitive here, but it's fascinating. So, in, uh, I guess, this crazy journey, as far as from the scientific modern perspective, starts in about 1898, where the shroud was, it was being photographed, okay? And remember how pictures and and camera technology was. Uh, so the shroud is being photographed, and what was discovered is that the image we see on the cloth is actually a negative image. And the picture that it was taken actually comes out as a detailed black and white positive. And so, but with our eyes, all we see is the yellowish image. And it's a yellowish image of a man who was, it looks like he was crucified and then he was buried. He has all the marks and the wounds and the blood and you see the lashings. Like you see all of this detailed information. And, uh, but the, when the picture is taken of the shroud itself, the picture itself becomes the positive, right? And it looks like what you're looking at when you look at the shroud is actually the negative. And so that was fascinating. And, but, People didn't quite, you know, they struggled with what was going on here with this, okay? But it was interesting. And in 1931, um, and if I'm, I may be wrong on my history here, but I think that uh, the church at the time 
um, wasn't all that keen on uh, some of the things that were being said about the shroud and what it was. And so didn't quite believe, you know, what the photographer was saying about his experience with it and when he took the picture and how he got the picture, et cetera, et cetera. So fast forward 1931, 30-something years later, more pictures uh, were, were taken, okay? The, so the church, you know, summoned someone to take more pictures of it. But now the camera technology is much better, right? And so let's see if that's what it is. And so the pictures were taken, and guess what happened? They got the same result. It's essentially, again, a negative image that develops as a positive. And what this ultimately leads to is lots of research and testing and questions from a medical perspective, from a criminologist perspective. Um, in fact, uh, there was a criminologist who was given permission to take these dust samples where he discovered pollen spores that were simply unique to the areas like Constantinople and Israel. So going back to, we talked about the circumstantial evidence for this timeline before 1356. Uh, this is where some of that circumstantial evidence comes from, is the pollen that you find that was found in these samples uh, come from plants and things that were unique to specific areas. And these were specific areas that it was said that the, you know, were part of the Shroud's history, um, its timeline, its travel line. So in the 70s, though, um, scientists discovered the shroud contained this fascinating stuff here, <laughs> what they call encoded 3D data, uh, which they tell me you will not find in ordinary photographs, okay? So they use special machinery, et cetera, to figure this thing out. So what this meant was that the cloth contained this, what they refer to as this quote-unquote distance information, which means the shroud would have been wrapped around a real human at the time the image was formed. Okay, now picture that. Think about that. <laughs> the picture or the image that's on the shroud, they're saying, based on this information that's encoded in this, leads to the reality that the image was transferred onto this shroud when the shroud was actually wrapped around a real human, okay? Um, so again, the shroud would have been wrapped around a hu real human at the time the image was formed. That is, that is fascinating. We were, uh, in fact, we were able, actually able to use this data along with uh, computer graphics to reconstruct this 3D image. And, and in fact, I'll put a link down below in the, the show notes of a video um, that, uh, where this was done, where information and data we have uh, from what the shroud image actually gives us. It gives us 3D information that we can use. And uh, they recreated it, the image from the shroud. They recreated whoever this man is on the shroud, okay? Like some people actually made a statue, like a life-size model, what it was, like the actual length of this person, the size, uh, the detailed information. It is super fascinating. It is, it is, it is, it's, and, and what you have here is you have information that you, don't, you, you won't get this from just taking a photograph, okay, a picture with a camera. Uh, so... That's unique about this, and, and that's part of the, the, the difficulty in trying to figure out how in the world did this image get upon uh, on this cloth. And so let's kind of go back again, uh, back in the 70s. In fact, in 1978, a, a team of about 30 scientists 
were given permission to analyze the shroud for five days. And so after they finished analyzing the shroud, they spent the next three years studying the data that they collected. And when they were finished, they released the report of all their findings. Remember, these are different scientists from different uh, perspective fields. And this is something they all agreed on. They said this, We can conclude for now that the shroud image is that of a real human form of a scourged, crucified man. It is not the product of an artist. The bloodstains are composed of hemoglobin and also give a positive test for serum albumin. The image is an ongoing mystery, and until further chemical studies are made, perhaps by this group of scientists or perhaps by some scientists in the future, the problem remains unsolved. Okay? Now, continue on into the 80s. They do they become interested in a timeline, like how old is this shroud? And so they do this radiocarbon uh, dating on it. And the conclusion, surprisingly, this is like this is a huge blow. It was that it was from between 19, uh, excuse me, from between 1260 and 1390. This was Middle Ages. Okay, now this was a huge blow, and it discredited a lot of the things that the scientists had said so far about the shroud. This report of this team that studied it for five days and then took three years to go over the data, uh, and then so you have this radiocarbon dating that takes place. And because of their findings with this radiocarbon dating, um, the Shroud of Turin is labeled a hoax. And it causes all sorts of negative attention uh, towards it. But as you're going to see a little bit later on, um, this radiocarbon, there's a, lot, there's a lot of controversy behind uh, this dating. Not necessarily the radiocarbon process itself, but how it took place and the information that was actually released. And so we'll get to that in a moment. But at this point in the 80s, you essentially have this thing labeled as a hoax. Okay. Now, in the 90s, there's this Israeli botanist who is observing and analyzing this, and they confirm images of flowers on the shroud, which would have been a part of the burial process. Okay. And he, he verified 28 different species, many of which only grow around Jerusalem. Okay. Fascinating, right? Uh, and then... Uh, going into the 2000s. So still, you have research, you have studies, you have people analyzing stuff. There's a, a textile expert that uh, basically verified the shroud as a style of textile used in the first century Israel. And then a chemist got a few thread samples from the same corner, okay, that was radiocarbon tested in the 80s. Remember the controversy I mentioned earlier? He also got thread samples from the interior parts of the shroud. So he gets them from the corner that was taken, uh, where threads were taken to do the, raven, uh, the, the radiocarbon dating in the 80s. And then uh, he takes them from there, and then he takes some more samples from some other places. He did some microchemical and spectroscopic tests and proved the samples were not the same. And so what it turns out is that the sample used to do the original carbon-14 dating uh, wasn't a part of the original shroud. It was a medieval reweave. Uh, and, and it was an attempt, I guess, to maybe fix the shroud or to, to, to strengthen it because this would have been an area where it was handled uh, mostly a lot of times, okay, and throughout its, its history, uh, which would, by the way, which would have caused or could have potentially caused the results of the carbon dating to be defective. But more on that. This, uh, this reality, okay, that the threads from the corner that was – carbon dated in previous years in the 80s, 
the reality that that was different thread, um, it wasn't a part of the original as the inner threads, would have been discovered back in the 80s, but they had violated protocol when it came to testing. So, for instance, uh, when it came to this testing, what you're supposed to do is supposed to grab at least three different samples from three different areas. They only grabbed one sample. Um, and so, obviously, that's a big issue. And they, if they would have grabbed samples from different areas of the shroud, this is a conclusion that they may have come to as well. But then a few years later, okay, in 2000, so you already have this, 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 these, these issues, okay, uh, starting to surface about the radiocarbon dating. Um, there's a lot more that could be said about that and the controversy behind it uh, and the process, essentially, that they went through in, 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 in order to, to, to date this thing. But we'll, we'll hit, hit on that in, in a little bit more because more is going to surface here in a few years. So in 2011, the National Agency for New Technologies did some of their own tests on the shroud. And what they did was they were able to reproduce the shroud image using a 40-second nanosecond burst from a UV laser. In other words, that's high-powered light, okay? They reproduced the image by using light. Now, that's that at this point, that's the only way this has been able to be reproduced. And so... Uh, this is this is something they said, and I'll quote it. A team of researchers from the National Agency of New Technologies, Energy and Sustainable Economic Development, in other words, ENEA, this is in Italy, has found that the Shroud of Turin is not a fake, and the body image was formed by a sort of electromagnetic source of energy. Okay, So in other words, how did this thing get on the claw? Yeah, the only way that they can surmise right, that this thing has transferred somehow, gotten onto this cloth— was through what they referred to as electromagnetic source of energy, okay, like a burst of radiation, if you will. And they're not necessarily saying it's Jesus. They're saying it's a real person. That's what they're saying. And they're saying the only conclusion they can come to is that this this would be how that image would have gotten on the cloth, okay? And now, again, this is with modern technology. I mean, we have the, man, it's amazing the, the things that we have the ability to do and to be the things we have the ability to see. So then even more research, okay, is being done and more controversies have surfaced. Uh, like just last year, in 2019, okay, it was revealed that not all of the data was published from the original carbon dating. In fact, back in the 80s, it seemed like it was withheld on purpose. So that comes to light, okay? And then someone actually writes a book debunking uh, and just uh, maybe debunking is hard, uh, maybe too too harsh of a word to use here, um, but highlighting all of the issues with the process they did when they did the radiocarbon uh, dating analysis. And I think I think another one was done, or at least I think they're thinking about or talking about possibly trying to do another one as well. So, again, many different people find the shroud fascinating. Okay, from from scientists to believers alike, the shroud it's filled with mystery. And the more it's examined and tested, the deeper the mystery gets. For instance, here's some of the findings, okay? Check this out. They determined that no substance was manually applied to the cloth, like a, like paint, ink, a dye, pigments, or stain. No, no brush marks. There's no strokes, right? directional strokes. Uh, no stain was used to make the image. So no liquids were used to make the image. Blood stains on the cloth actually tested positive for human blood. And in fact, it's, it, they say it's type AB. Then uh, Dr. Adler, who was a, a blood chemist on the original team that studied the shroud uh, back in 78, uh, 
The blood, he says this, the blood marks seen on the shroud are consistent with a, con- uh, with a contact transfer to the cloth of blood emitted from major wounds inflicted on a man who died in the position of a crucifixion. In other words, these, the, 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 these, the image as it transferred over, right, the blood marks, it was consistent with a transfer, like if you cut yourself, cut your on your hand and blood's flowing, and then all of a sudden you, you press your hand against a cloth, what's the image that you're going to get? This is what he's saying. It's consistent with that, okay? In some of the words, a cloth would have been wrapped around after these things happened, and uh, the man, and the way the blood, the blood um, flowed and the location of the wounds uh, are, yeah, consistent with someone who was crucified in the position that one would be if they were hung on a cross. And then the image they tell us on the shroud is superficial. In other words, it doesn't penetrate the cloth, but it rests on the top two microfibers. Uh, the example that I heard was, imagine having this image as a, as, as a relatable maybe example. The image kind of resting on the arm hairs of right the hairs on your arm um, doesn't soak in. It's not. It's like right there on the surface, right there on the top. How in the world? Um, further, they said, "Listen, there's 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 no outline or defined edges to the image. Uh, you know how when you draw and paint, there, there's a way that you can, you know, you you, you define." Of those spaces. Yeah, that doesn't exist on here. This wasn't a painting or a drawing. In fact, they say, listen, there are no chemical or physical methods known which can account for the totality of the image, nor can any combination of physical, chemical, biological, or medical circumstances explain the image adequately. Yeah, <laughs> that's what, that is so, this is, this is what is, makes it so fascinating, uh, intriguing, and controversial for so many people from so many different places. Um, a few other things that we, we, we gather from all the information and research, to me, that are intriguing. Uh, consider the, the bloodstains on the head. There's literally, look at the image. There are bloodstains on the head that are compatible with a crown of thorns. Um, there's over 120 scourge or whip marks, um, compatible, which are compatible with what, what this uh, floggings would have looked like, the instruments they would have used to, to, to beat, to do the scourging. In fact, one researcher counted 370 wounds, and, there was, and that wasn't counting wounds that would have come around the side, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they're estimating upwards to 600, I think, or more uh, wounds. on the, So this guy was beat, man. This is an image of a person who was beat, and it was an image that was not painted on a cloth. It, it's, it, it, it disappeared. Then um, there's a, in the image, there's a nail wounds in the wrists, right, which we, we typically think that the wounds were in the hands of Jesus, but actually they would have been in the wrist because the hands would not have been able to hold the weight of the body up on the cross. And so uh, typically they suggest that, that this is exactly where the the nails would have been. Uh, there's a nail wound in the feet. The man's feet were on top of, of each other, like you would consider being on a cross. Um, legs are uh, were pulled up, in fact, in this image, uh, due to rigor mortis. There's this uh, stiffness, right, the muscles that, that kind of sets in. 
after death and uh, lasts for a couple of days. And so there's this, 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 this stiffness that happens to the body and it kind of tightens itself up. Um, the blood that's on the, on the shroud is sourced from actual wounds showing evidence of the, the gravity from a vertical position, like a person was on a cross and the blood's flowing in a certain direction and that direction indicates, right, the position of the body. There are no stains of body decomposition on the cloth, which is fascinating because, you know, the resurrection happened on the third day before decomposition had time to occur, maybe. Um, the wound, there's a wound. <laughs> there's a wound in the side of this man, and it's compatible in size with a Roman spear tip as well. Um, there's a post-mortem blood flow from the side wound that also flows across across the back. There's, just, there's this image, okay? There's this image that is consistent and compatible with someone who died on a cross, had a, had a crown of thorns put on their head, had a spear in the side, nails in the hands and the feet, and was scourged, beaten, okay, uh, and died in, these, in this position um, and wrapped in this cloth. Like, that's the image you have. Now, the question is, is it Jesus or is it somebody else? Like, we, we don't know, right? We just don't know how in the world it got there. And with all the scientific uh, uh, resources, tools, technology that we have, we're still puzzled. And, uh, I, you know, I heard something just recently. Someone tried to debunk it by saying the blood flow was not consistent. And I think they used, uh, you know, some dummies and people and they had blood on them and they wrapped them in a cloth and said, see, this is what it would look like as opposed to this. And, uh, but there's so many, so many problems with that little test or experiment that was done there. And uh, this isn't the first time people have tried to say things about it and tried to say it could be this, it could be this, and try to debunk it from being, you know, actually an actual person uh, into being something that was, you know, created by some artist. But over and over and over again, over again, over and over again, the science and the methods used, the methods used to research this thing, the data that we collect, that we see, there's nothing conclusive. It just leads to more mysteries. And I suggest probably that the more technologically advanced we become, the more mysteries we'll probably have around it. So the question is, is it Jesus or not? Well, we don't know. And while everything else seems to match someone who was crucified, the size and features of this man do not match what some historians believe, you know, Jesus would have looked like. In fact, the man in the shroud is actually 5'11 and not 5'5. And some suggest that the characteristics that he has are more like European characteristics. And uh, there's, oh man, this, and this is just, this is, this is, this is like an acre of the tip of the iceberg, okay? Like this is, there's so much more information, there's so much more things. Um, to, that we could talk about and look at um, that, man, lead to more and more questions about this thing. And so if you think that Jesus, you know, would have looked more like the average Jew during that time, it doesn't quite fit the image of this man. Um, but at the same time, who said Jesus looked like everyone else, right? What if he was a little bit taller? And if he was a little bit taller, would that have changed some of the some of the typical characteristics of you know, men during Jesus's day. Um, and, you know, 
even before the shroud, just thinking about these other events that I mentioned in Jesus's life that made me wonder, well, I wonder if, you know, Jesus had like this, was this towering figure. Maybe he was a little bit bigger, uh, stood out from everyone else. And maybe this is why you see people responding the way they did or not responding at all. Um, not willing to just ch- take Jesus out, right? Um, so is this Jesus? We don't know. But I think um, there's a quote by the historian J.E. Walsh, and I think this pretty much sums it up, okay? Tons of mystery. It's so intriguing. It's so interesting to me. Uh, I just I can't get enough of it. I don't know if it's Jesus, Okay, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be Jesus. Uh, it's just super intriguing to me in trying to figure out, you know, all of the irregularities in this and how in the world was this thing created. But this historian J. E. Walsh said this. He said, "The shroud is either the most awesome and instructive relic of Christ in existence." Or it is one of the most ingenious, most unbelievably clever products of the human mind. On record. He says it is either one or the other. There's no middle ground. It's either Jesus, right, and the most most amazing relics we have. Or this is the most unbelievably clever products that we have ever, ever been created and would have been created in a time, in a time that did not have the technology we have today. That's something to think about. That's something, something to think about. So, well, that's going to do it for this episode. Lots of speculation, sure, but man, there are some things here that uh, really get me going and might, you might find of interest as well. And so, if you're interested in further research about the Shroud of Turin, I'll have links in the show notes, and uh, you can check those out. Um, there's lots of information. You can Google lots of stuff. There's lots of back and forths, uh, lots of pros and cons, uh, things that people say about it and uh, that are good, and you know others who are trying to debunk it and try to explain you know this away or that away. And at the end of the day, there's still no conclusive evidence as to one way or the other. And I think. The historian Johnny Walsh, I think his, his statement that I said earlier, uh, I think that pretty much pretty much sum, sums it up. So that's going to do it for this episode. Um, if you're interested in further research about the Shroud of Turin, there'll be some links in the show notes. Uh, I'll take you there and uh, you know, check those things out if that's of interest to you. And uh, thanks for joining me on this episode. And join me next time for Jesus the Man, Part 4.